From Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. Well, the longest serving alderman in Chicago history is now convicted on federal corruption charges. Ed Burke was found guilty on 13 of 14 counts. Federal prosecutors say he abused his powerful position at City Hall for personal gain, putting pressure on people to get what he wanted. The public voted Mr. Burke into office, and they trusted that he would be guided by mo and motivated by pursuing the common good. He betrayed that trust. That's the acting U.S. Attorney Morris Pasquale following the conviction of the former Chicago Alderman Ed Burke this week. Burke was convicted on 13 of 14 counts against him. Jurors found he used his position to extort money, including to help his own law firm. It's another chapter in Illinois' long history of corruption, and we're going to talk about that and more coming up on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield. Our panel includes Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. Charlie has also been a longtime Statehouse reporter and observer. And with us, our guest this week, Dave McKinney with WBEZ. Dave, it's always great to have you back with us. Sean, I love being on the show. Thanks for having me. Charlie, I'll go to you first because Ed Burke has been around a long time, as was mentioned. He is the longest-serving Chicago alderman. He's not that well-known, though, across the state of Illinois, but quite powerful. I believe I read he had served under eight different mayors. So he goes back a long way, charged with trying to extort developers to use his law firm, among other things. Is this what people think of when we talk negatively about Chicago machine politics? Yeah, he is one of the... Uh... If not, well, it's certainly in, in the city council, he's the last of the old school Chicago politicians. I would say in the city, Michael Madigan would fall into that category also, although he now has no public office. And Burke, of course, retired from the city council. And the, the reaction I found was interesting. The reaction from the members of his or the, the, the people who live in the 14th ward where he's been the longtime ward committeeman as well uh they were kind of divided a lot of them were pretty complimentary and said well he in, in essence he always got my streets clean he took care of whatever problems i had and you know he, he was good for us he did a lot of charitable work and we, we really appreciated him. And there were some people who said, well, yeah, but you had to be part of the gang, so to speak. And if you weren't, then you were SOL. And it, it struck me that the reaction from members of the city council itself were more sympathetic, if you will. They looked at it, this is more of a tragedy than a crook brought to justice. And they had much more condemnation for Danny Solis, the former alderman who's, who the feds wired up to get all these incriminating statements and comments from Burke, they called him, I think, a snake or viper, stuff like that. The politicals were quite happy to see it happen. Lori Lightfoot in particular butted heads with Burke all along, commented that, uh, and I'll read her quote here, with this jury's verdict, Ed Burke should rightfully be remembered as a man who elevated personal ambition and greed over doing the people's work. Well, Dave, this uh, 
of course, follows on the heels of some other major corruption cases mm-hmm. that are being brought uh, by the federal prosecutor's office there in Chicago. Uh, where does this one stand when it comes to this conviction? Uh, this has got to be quite a feather in the cap, I would think, for the U.S. Attorney's Office. This case had, had been in the pipeline for a number of years, and and finally it it wound up going to trial. And it's the fourth major public corruption case that has gone on in Chicago's federal courthouse this year. I mean, of course, in, in the spring, we had, you know, the the, the, the group of former ComEd executives and lobbyists that were were tried and, and uh, found guilty. Uh, we had the uh, the former chief of staff of uh, House Speaker, ex-House Speaker Michael Madigan, Tim Mapes, uh, tried and found guilty uh, for lying to the FBI. We've had uh, the son-in-law of former Cook County Assessor, uh, Joe Barrios uh, tried and found guilty, and so here we have a fourth case. That the, the fact that there are guilty guilty verdicts in all of these cases demonstrates, I think, the deep public cynicism toward public corruption in Illinois. And Charlie's point about the reaction in the city council to to this latest development involving Burke, I think, shows a, a big disconnect between a lot of our public officials and the general public about how serious this behavior is because you know there is a, a the, the point in 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 our democracy is that when you have people serving in these these offices that they're they're doing the public's work and what we we saw played out over and over again and and all the recordings with Burke were were instances where he was you know connecting driveway permits that that businesses needed to function with hiring his law firm for property tax work. Nothing to do with one another, except for the fact Burke had this ability uh, to, to basically put the brakes on anything he wanted to at City Hall. And he he also was making money on the side as, as all, all do in their careers. Uh, he, he linked them together in this way, the jury found. And so, um, you know, the, 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 the idea that, you know, you have, uh, these convictions is not surprising because it was a, you know, the, just the, the, the data that public, uh, the data that the Justice Department publishes on, on these types of cases, 92 to 93% of these public corruption cases that go to trial result in convictions and only about 1% result in acquittals. So it's, it's almost never going in the favor of these elected officials that go on trial. Yeah. And what, one last thing th- thing about Burke and and you know people around the state perhaps not being as familiar with him uh, as as people in Chicago are. Uh, his, his wife is uh, uh, she's the former Chief Justice of the Illinois Supreme Court. You know one of one of the many powers that Ed Burke had in his capacity as the long serving city alderman was that he he led the uh, the county Democratic Party's. Uh, slate making activities for judges. So if you wanted to be a judge in Cook County, you had to kiss the ring of Ed Burke in order to get the blessing of the county political machine. And and it was almost a guarantee of being elected. And of course, uh, Ann Burke wound up uh, getting an appointment to the appellate court. And then uh, she wound up getting onto the state Supreme Court. And uh, she she served there for a number of years. But but the, they were Illinois' power couple. And, and now... Uh, you know, his legacy has been tarnished irreparably. Now, Charlie, you know, one of the charges against him or one of the cases that the uh, prosecutors used was a what they called a shakedown between Burke and owners of a Burger King that was being built in uh, 2017 on the city's southwest side. 
Burke accused of holding up building and driveway permits in an attempt to get business from the franchise owners for his private law firm. Now, I hate to say it, but that sounds kind of par for the course of the type of thing you'll hear in these types of corruption cases. One that didn't uh, seem as par for the course to me was the one involving the Field Museum. He was trying to get an internship for some family friend. Well, I think it illustrated the fact that Alderman Burke, he was pretty thorough in assessing what opportunities there were for his law firm to get business. And in this case, it involved an internship at the Field Museum for a young lady who I believe is his goddaughter. And the appointment wasn't coming through. And he had a conversation that one of the executives at Field Museum thought was very threatening and intimidating. It was basically, well, along the lines of, well, you know, you're going to want this uh, admission tax uh, increase and a, a call from me to the park district or whoever it is that controls the, the fees might be important. Now, the young woman never got the internship. She, was, she found some other opportunity. But it struck me at the time that this is really just an example of how thorough he was in exploring all the opportunities he had and I assume there'd be many other instances out there that weren't part of the record, not part of the criminal uh, offenses with which he was charged and convicted that would illustrate how in his role, he found jobs for probably hundreds, if not thousands of people, cut deals to help folks get not just driveway permits, but whatever kind of permit they might need. And he, he just used his position on the one hand to do good for a lot of people, but on the other hand, to also line his pocket. So I think it'll go down. And as Dave said, his reputation is certainly tarnished, but it's also a mixed legacy. As, as I indicated earlier, the reactions from people in his ward came down to the old kind of, when I started out as a reporter more than 50 years ago, the idea in Chicago was, well, if I get the garbage picked up and if I get my street plowed and if I get the sidewalks fixed, uh, I don't care. Yeah, Dave, I believe his sentencing is set for, at this point, for June, but uh, there's likely going to be appeals. I believe even I heard his uh, attorney saying that they may request a new trial. Is there something lingering out there that could, uh, you know, somehow disrupt this conviction? Well, I mean, you know, there is the, uh, this, there, there is a case that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in this pa in the past week here has chosen to hear. Uh, it's, a, it's a corruption case out of uh, Portage, Indiana, involving the former mayor there, where uh, he was convicted of, of uh, accepting a bribe. Uh, he, he, he had been involved in steering uh, city contracts to a, a company for, for municipal garbage trucks. And after those contracts were awarded, he then uh, offered up his services as, you know, as, as a consultant, air quotes around the word consultant, uh, to this particular company. And they paid him, uh, I believe, $12,000 cash. And, and that was all built around, uh, or that, that, all, that, that became enough of a, of a uh, you know, an, enough of a narrative for the feds to build a, a, a bribery case around it. Well, the Supreme Court now is, is, is going to determine whether that was bribery because the, the money came after the, uh, uh, after the, the contracts were awarded, you know, was there truly a quid pro quo? How that ties to Burke and some of these other cases is, uh, it, you know, they, they were all charged in varying forms with 
with bribery, some with additional charges than that. But but the bribery uh, question is, you know, was there a quid pro quo demonstrated? I think in Burke's case, you know, these recordings, they they all kind of a lot of them demonstrated that that you know there was a quid pro quo going on. But what? I think if the, the Supreme Court acts on this case and and over you know tightens the federal bribery statute, it could affect. Um, you know, cases like Burke's and the others that we've seen this year, it could, it could really blow a hole in what, you know, one of the main tools that federal prosecutors use to go after corrupt politicians. And there is some speculation that maybe the Commonwealth Edison folks who were uh, uh, the, the lobbyists and executives who were convicted earlier this year, and then also even uh, the former House Speaker Michael Madigan, that those cases could be impacted as well, right? Yeah, I mean, we've already seen uh, requests. Uh, I mean, there's been concrete action taken in the case of the the ComEd people, uh, the former CEO Ann Promajori, former lobbyist Michael McLean, and, and two others uh, were due to be sentenced for their uh, guilty verdicts in January, and they they cited this case out of Portage, Indiana, as as a basis for you know, seeking a federal judge to, to delay their sentencing. So that's these January sentencings for these folks have been put off. And, and uh, there's been a similar motion filed by Madigan's lawyers. Uh, he, he was due to stand trial uh, beginning April 1st, probably would have been a two-month trial. Um, they're seeking to have a stay on all of the proceedings or at a, at a, at a minimum have the trial put off until the fall of 2024. Uh, we expect the Supreme Court will probably make a decision on on you know this bribery case out of Northwest Indiana uh, by June at the latest. The core of all of this is that in case after case, we're seeing slam dunk verdicts by these federal juries, and I, I do think that that the Supreme Court that they're not they're not going to be listening to some reporter from Chicago, I'm sure, but like you know the fact that you have a jury listening to the facts of the case, I think it it ought to be an extraordinary kind of thing to set aside a verdict. As I mentioned earlier in the show, it's like there is a great distaste for this kind of misconduct among among voters. People in Illinois are getting fed up with it. Yeah, Charlie, you've followed, of course, all of these cases too, not, not there uh, personally, but certainly reading up on them. And you're not an attorney, but the Madigan case, you can think there may be some wiggle room here, especially if the court goes a certain way. I've not read all the, the briefings and all the paperwork the way that Dave has, but I don't believe there was ever an example as blatant as some of the stuff that the recordings Solis produced of Burke provided for the jury that found Burke guilty of 13 or 14 charges. I think Madigan's operation was always a lot more subtle, and it was more a wink, wink, nod, nod, and kind of an understanding and so, well, uh, here's here's kind of the game plan. You go along with the game plan and everything's copacetic. And if you don't, well, you might have trouble. And so if, in fact, the U.S. Supreme Court says, well, gratuities aren't enough, rewards aren't enough, uh, understandings that good things will happen in the future aren't enough, there actually has to be proof of a quid pro quo in other words, the equivalent of money actually changing hands, then this particular federal statute regarding bribery doesn't apply. Now, and, and Dave, you could 
refresh my memory on this, I believe that the Fed, subsequent to the time they initially announced the charges on Madigan, I think they updated the the charges, didn't they, to kind of reflect where this might be going? Well, there was a, a superseding indictment that that came down uh, where they they you know they they uh, have a, a conspiracy count thrown in as well. I mean, it's you know the thing with with Madigan is there there's a bribery component to it, but there's also racketeering. There's also conspiracy. So the feds have, you know, they have they've they've got other crimes being charged here beyond just this bribery uh, situation. So I think at best, you know, the the uh, uh, you know I know the defense lawyers think that you know since bribery is sort of the the spine of the the feds case, the, this other stuff doesn't matter. I think the feds did take steps and have taken steps to kind of insulate these cases from, you know, potentially adverse opinions coming down from the Supreme Court. Dave, you mentioned that the public's getting kind of fed up with with public corruption. I think they always have been, to some extent, fed up with it. But at the same time, you recently reported that corruption and and the, the exercise of democracy, the going out to vote, people are still doing that. They're not necessarily, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, when it comes to what they're seeing from their government. Is that correct? Well, it is correct. I mean, the, you know, you, there's a lot of data out there on, on public corruption that um, I took a little time to kind of analyze and bring together into a piece. And it, you know, just in the, uh, if, if you look in the Northern District of Illinois, where, uh, you, you know, all of these corruption cases we've been talking about have been playing out, the volume of these cases being brought uh, are at an eight-year high, or they were, according to the most recent data published. So it, the, the trend line is, is is headed back up. I mean, it, you know, it used to be that you'd have several hundred of these corruption cases on an annual basis being being tried in Chicago's federal courthouse, and it's down now substantially from the 70s. But, but again, the trend line is pointing up. And, um, you know, what I did was just look at, you know, since the, the George Ryan convictions back in the early uh, 2000s, you know, the, the, that conviction and Rod Blagojevich, and we've seen, you know, legislators, aldermen, others kind of in this long line of, of people parading in and out of that courthouse. What effect has that had on, on voting patterns? And what, what it, at least in Illinois, what, it, what I was able to, you know, observe from 2002 to 2022, the uh, percentage of uh, total ballots cast in gubernatorial elections in each of those cycles during that the, that period of time grew by 13%. And overall voter registration in that period grew by 15%. People have not reached the point of frustration in Illinois where they throw their hands up and say, well, look, voting doesn't matter because everybody's corrupt. I mean, fortunately, we're not in that position. But, you know, there are worrisome signs out there that, you know, we've, we've seen polling done in Illinois. I mean, the most the, the most comprehensive polling that has been done in Illinois on corruption is probably a, a 2012 poll that the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute did uh, on corruption. It was after the, the Blagojevich, Blagojevich uh, guilty verdict. And, and at that point in time, 75% roughly of, of Illinoisans thought that corruption in state government was rampant, was widespread. And that gives a sense. I don't think there's any reason to think that that's changed. And you know, the, the, the effect of that is that, you know, it, it affects people's faith in, in public institutions. It, it affects their, their 
belief in in steps that government is taking. I mean, you you go back and look at the uh, the graduated income tax push that J.B. Pritzker tried to to do uh, after take you know taking office in 2020. He tried to get this passed. Opponents to it cited the the litany of corruption we've had in Illinois, and it went down to defeat. So you you can see that there there was some impact that it had on on initiatives like that. Other little details out of this reporting that that fascinated me was how you know there there was a study done a while back looking at at you know this conviction data that the Justice Department publishes you know on public corruption and how in the the states that had the the, the largest volume of those cases the ten most case uh, ten most corrupt states you could say Illinois being one of them researchers at Indiana University and Hong Kong University found that that there's sort of a corruption premium that people in those states uh, wind up experiencing that that overall government spending is up in those places versus places that don't see this kind of corruption. Um, I think the the amount they found on average in spending was something like $1,300 more in government spending per capita in corrupt states versus non-corrupt states, which I thought was interesting. You know, we, we've seen examples in Illinois even of, you know, you look at the, the case that the feds brought against Bulgojevich. So you can see that that there's an, an effect from it. But but again, I think overall, Sean, the, the idea that that our our that Illinois voters are not so soured by this. They're, they're, they're cynical, yes, but they're not so soured that they're they're not voting. I think that is the sliver of good news. You talked to Becky Simon, president of the League of Women Voters, and her notion was that when corruption is uncovered, you reported, it might actually spur more voters to go to the polls, to wanting to root the crooks out, as she said. And here's her quote, in spite of corruption on the part of individual elected officials, Voters still have confidence in American democracy. This, that is what the league sees. That is why voters are going to the polls. They were voting that they had faith in our democracy. When corruption is exposed, voters are ready and eager to make their voice heard through the democratic process, through voting. So I thought that was a very interesting take, a very optimistic take, uh, but it comports with what the data suggests. Illinois voters are still turning out. Yeah, yeah, very true. Charlie, I did want to touch on the fact that this week we had a sad case out of Chicago when it comes to the migrant shelters that are being operated there, and a five-year-old boy died there, and others apparently have become sick at one of them. This was one in the Pilsen neighborhood. It's sort of like a a -a whack-a-mole operation with Texas Governor Greg Abbott in a very Machiavellian way trying to mess with cities with Democratic mayors trying to impede Joe Biden's reelection by sending these migrants to these from Texas and shipping them out to cities up in the north. The most recent, most tragic involved the fact that a little five-year-old boy died, and I don't think the autopsy report has been reported yet, but he passed away. He was staying in a shelter, a former warehouse and it's the most crowded shelter in the city, more than 2,000 people, something like 2,300, 2,400, most of the minors jam-packed into this place. And the, the videos that have been snuck out show kids sick, show them cramped, show water dripping from the ceiling onto cots. And the company that's running it, a Kansas-based contractor that's been paid more than 100 million or close to 100 million to run these since uh, a year ago, September, won't let outside healthcare providers come in. 
the city passed an ordinance saying that you have to drop these buses off or drop the people off at certain landing zones between certain hours and you have to let us know about it. So the Texas governor stopped notifying. Chicago had no notice and turns out they began dropping people off in the suburbs, in the south suburbs or in Indiana, giving them Amtrak fare or Metra fare and letting them go downtown. And some of the local villages on the south side said, okay, and they passed ordinances also to impound buses and fine. And so the, the latest uh, development, if you want to call it that, uh, an airplane was sent from Texas, identified by its tail in numbers as being the Texas Emergency Services folks, lands at O'Hare, drops off a bunch of people. But anyway, the this chartered flight apparently is what the governor of Texas is going to continue to do. And I would be less critical of Abbott, and I would be less inclined to call him a hypocrite if, in fact, Texas officials would contact Chicago officials and say, look, we have this bus. It's got X number of people on it. We've done preliminary medical screenings. Uh, they, they don't have proper clothing, and we want you to be pre prepared when these folks arrive that you can take care of them instead of just kind of dropping them out of nowhere. You know, particularly in the Christmas season, that's really heartbreaking. All right. Well, it's time now for our notes from the field. And uh, Dave, let's go to you. Well, I think the thing that I'm kind of watching, uh, we're still a couple of weeks away from the when presidential candidates have to file their uh, signatures or nominating signatures, uh, petitions uh, in Illinois. Uh, we saw this big ruling come down from the Colorado Supreme Court ruling that, that Donald Trump was ineligible to be on the presidential ballot in that state. And uh, strong belief that that's going to going to you know, go before the, the, the U.S. Supreme Court to uh, to review. I'm very eager to see how this plays out uh, in Illinois, because I think that there could, you know, be a similar effort here in Illinois, uh, focusing on the 14th Amendment, uh, Trump's role in the January 6th insurrection, um, and and whether that precludes him from running for president. And, and I think that you know, the the filing of the signatures here in Illinois will be an important development about, you know, any of these groups that are entertaining in Illinois, uh, possibly chat making a similar challenge. I think that that's the date that has to happen first. And Charlie. Well, here's a trivia question for folks out there who might be sports fans. What is the oldest rivalry in the NFL? Now, for those of you who are inclined to say, well, obviously it's the Bears and the Packers. Wrong. It's actually, believe it or not, the Bears and the Cardinals, and that will be renewed on Sunday at Soldier Field. It began in Chicago in 1920 when the then Chicago Cardinals, known at the time as the Racine Cardinals, played the Decatur Staley's, which became the Chicago Bears. And in 1920, uh, both the Cardinals and the Bears were invited to a meeting in Canton, Ohio, that resulted in the creation of the American Professional Football Association, later the NFL. Before the start of the first season, the, the, the team was renamed the Chicago Cardinals. They had been called the Chicago, the Racine Cardinals because they were played on, on South Racine Avenue. And the Staley's moved to Chicago in 21 and became the Bears. 
and they are the only two original league members still in existence. The Packers didn't join until 1921, and the first game between the Cardinals and the Staley's, later the Bears, occurred on November 28, 1920, and the Cardinals actually gave the Bears, the Staley's, their only loss of the season, winning 7-6. to six. And the Bears actually lead the series between the, the two teams. And this information comes courtesy of a story in Chicago Magazine that I found very interesting. And as a personal note, the, the first two pro football games I saw were as a high school student, and they were at Old Comiskey Park, and it was the Chicago Cardinals playing. Good history lesson there for us. Well, that will do it for State Week. Our panel today included Charlie Wheeler and Dave McKinney of WBEZ. You can find our show where you get your podcasts through the NPR app and at nprillinois.org. Just look for State Week. I'm Sean Crawford, and join us next time. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.